Let's crawl back into the Esau series this morning and begin with this statement that is true. Sin is like a wrecking ball in a china shop when it comes to relating. The ball leaves behind it a path of destruction. Have you seen the pictures from Hurricane Ida? Have you seen any of the befores and the afters? It's just amazing, the devastation we need to be praying for Louisiana. Those pictures, as bad as they are, have nothing on the carnage that sinful choices wreak in our network and in our relationship. Sin gnaws away at the vitality of how we relate. It gnaws away in families. It gnaws away in friendship circle. It gnaws away in work circles. Somebody posts some crazy thing online that's insulting to somebody else and somehow assumes that this will not affect how people relate. Uh, Twitter is famous for uh, sarcastic slams of other people. People offer insults to others, demeaning comments within, within families, within friendship circles. And then the families get together at Thanksgiving, and everybody goes home and says, you know, I just didn't feel the same. <laughs> it was different. Duh, there is an effect between our sinful relatedness to others and thereafter how we relate. People make choices. Uh, people make choices how to relate uh, sometimes before they're married. They say, well, well, we'll live together before we're married, and it will have no effect upon the future. Isn't it interesting? that percentage-wise, secular sociologists who study this thing say that uh, uh, folks who cohabitate before marriage, uh, if you're betting, you have a one and a one-third greater chance of experiencing divorce after your marriage if you've cohabitated before marriage. And yet the thought is, that doesn't matter. And no matter what it is, these relationships are affected. Cheat in commerce, betray a confidence, of a workmate, watch being always quick to criticism, watch how this affects how people relate. All of our sinful gestures stack up on top of each other and affect relationships. But there's a lie out there that many embrace that Esau wasn't thinking carefully about and he embraced that we need to consider. Lie number five this morning is sin has no relational consequence. We live in an age that's full of the spirit of, hey, I can do whatever I want, and whatever I want has no effect upon others. Well, that's a nice thought. It's just not true. Uh, because there's a sense in which we are all connected, and another person's sinful choice can cast a shadow in our lives, and we can bump up against it and be affected by it. God sent Jesus Christ to redeem us from the awful consequences of sin. Old gospel hymn, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. 
And the honest person who is trying to understand and get their mind wrapped around the meaning of the gospel would say, saves from what? Well, he saves from the consequences of sin, including destroyed relationships. And like a wrecking ball through a china shop, our sinful choices can take down relationships. All of us know it. 20 years ago, people who were thick, who don't even speak to each other now. Families blasted apart and can scarcely even get together. Let's use Genesis chapter 31 this morning in this story of Esau and Jacob as a mirror. And let's hold the mirror up and ask ourselves, are we making any choices that are detrimental to how we are relating to others. We crawl into the Esau story, but as we've said before, Esau is not the central figure in this narrative. Jacob is, because the promise goes Abraham to Isaac, and Isaac not to Esau, firstborn son, but to Jacob. So Jacob is the central figure. We'll take one Sunday where we'll look at uh, God choosing Jacob to receive the blessing. Esau trades away his firstborn inheritance rights over a bowl of red stew. Then he gets really angry about being hornswoggled out of the inheritance. And in chapter 27 and verse 42, his mother reports to his brother, Jacob, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Esau's homicidal in Genesis 27. And Rebekah, trying to preserve the life of Jacob, conceives of the idea, I will use the ruse of, hey, let's not let him marry a Canaanite woman. These Hittites have caused all kinds of problems. We'll, we'll send him back to my people back in Padam Aram, Mesopotamia, and he'll find a wife back there. And her plan was, let's get him out of here or his brother's going to kill him. The plan worked. He left. By the way, as we said before, he would not see his mother again. Notice again the link between sinful relatedness to others and loss. We're going to come back to that. So we jump in the story 20 years in advance. He went away. He hooks up with Laban, the brother of his mother. He stays there for 20 years. And God rubbed his face and what was most in his scheming heart by having him be around Laban. And he reminded Jacob what it's like to be around a cheat and a person who's trying to swindle you all the time. And after 20 years of swindling, God told Jacob, Jacob, you can go home now. And so that's Genesis 31. I want to go three different directions this morning. I want to look at this history. Not to fill your mind with 
ad nauseum Bible facts that have nothing to do with the Monday through Saturday lives that you and I prosecute. But these things were written for our example. And Esau is an example of how not to do life. Examples can be positive to follow and negative to avoid. And Esau made sinful choices that estranged him from others. First, I want to look at the story. Second, I want to identify the lie. Here it is, lie number five. Sin has no relational consequences. That is a lie. And finally, we'll inventory our own hearts before we leave. What does this mean to us and our networks? And how is how we are relating to others affecting the relationship. Number one, the road of sin is littered with loss and messed up relationships. Come to Genesis 31. Let me read some of it to you this morning. Feel the relational tension. Feel the emotional tone of the passage. To set up for this, let me read 28, 1 through 5, and then 31, 1 through 13, and 38 to 42. And I'll direct them to you. Chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Fast forward 20 years after he's been there and faced the treachery of Laban for that long. Chapter 31 and verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he's gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all 
that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. You remember when he's on his way, he stops at this place and sleeps. The Lord comes to visit him. He said, we've got to call this place the house of God, and he anoints a rock there. It was called Bethel. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Now come with me to verses 38 through 42. Laban catches up with him. He's very angry. By the way, the family idols have been stolen. That's a whole other incident that we're not getting into this morning. Uh, but in terms of why would they have stolen the family idols, every, these ladies, the daughter of Laban, had faced and lost everything. They had no inheritance and in the Mesopotamian law, it said, whoever has possession of the family, small g, gods, gets an inheritance. And so maybe uh, Rachel was trying to uh, nurse along security by stealing that so as to maintain claim on the, an inheritance that would sustain their future. Here's what Jacob tells Laban, verses 38 to 42. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of the flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sheep fled from my eyes. Sleep, my sleep, while I was watching the sheep, fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and notice this name for God, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Hear the word of the Lord. Now let's make two observations about this road. The road of sin is littered with loss and messed up relationships. Observation number one, sin separated Laban from his daughters and his son-in-law Jacob. Here in Genesis 31, sin does exactly what it always does. It separates. First, man from God. That's Adam and Genesis chapter 3. But then us from each other. Sin separates us. Laban is separated from his daughters. He's separated from his grandchildren. But his daughters along the way get wise to his scheme. Notice what they say in verses 14 through 16. By the way, I encourage you to read through Genesis 31 in its entirety this week. Here's what the daughters say. Then Rachel, I'm reading 31, 14, 15, and 16. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, that would be to Jacob, their husband, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Answer, no. Are we not regarded by him as a foreigner? Answer, yes. For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God had taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to do, you do. 
Laban is the one, uh, one of several figures in the New Testament that wherever you see him, you can always see his motive. He's motivated by greed. What Laban wants to do is to acquire everything he can. His heart idol is greed. He desires to have stuff and to find security in stuff. And so he was even willing to exploit his daughters, to use them to capitalize literally, financially on them by not receiving a dowry that would somehow be a blessing to his daughters in return, in reciprocation, but to take the labor of Jacob for seven years and a trick, get seven more years, and then get six more years, and all the while changing, the stand, changing his wages ten times and changing the terms of, well, hey, I'll tell you what, every spotted calf this year is yours. And he knew that genetically the spotted calves were more rare. But in that very year, when he would offer such a declaration, that would be the year when the windfall of all uh, the calves were spotted. And so striped and vice versa. But God counterbalanced the evil that Laban was trying to wreak. And by the way, he always does. And if you're concerned about what is going on in the world, know that God is superintending our world and working things out for his good and for his glory in the midst of his control. The price of Laban's covetousness was a loss of relationship with his daughter. Have you ever seen someone ruin relationships in a pursuit of money and goods. Laban would not be the last person to do that. Alan Ross said, God calls us to forsake our flourishing world and get on with the advance of his program. Remember, it's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, my will be done. Let me acquire all that I can and amass all that I can can in life. Is our drive to make anything besides God our hope trumping our relatedness to others? In a headlong pursuit to acquire, all Laban did was smash his relatedness to his daughters, his grandchildren, and his son-in-law. Now the second observation is this, and this is what's glorious about the gospel. But God delivers his people from the devastation sin brings to our relationship. Now, the details of Genesis 31 fill in the gaps of this incredible narrative story of Abraham's family. This is Abraham's grandson. But they speak into our day, and I love what God is doing in Genesis 31. As you look at this, as you read it together this week, just notice what God is doing all through this chapter. I love what God does and says. Look at verse 7. Jacob says that God did not permit him to harm me. Were those 20 years hard? Yep. Was it difficult? Yep. Did it press Jacob greatly? Yes, it did. But Jacob could stand 20 years later and said, you know what? 
the overarching conviction that I have is God did not permit him to harm me. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 31. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. You see, what started Jacob's sensitivity to maybe it's time to leave is Laban's sons start looking up. They start taking inventory. Look at the big flocks of Jacob. My goodness, look what's happened. This is terrible. He's stealing all that from our father. And then he noticed that Laban was no longer looking with favor upon him. At one point, he was his cash cow, bringing him a lot of blessing, working and these tricks to get stay around for 14 years for nothing and laboring on the farm. And then six more years, again, wages changed. God changed that whole calculus. In the midst of what was difficult, he was providing for the one that he had promised and to whom the promise would come. Look at verse 12. I love this. I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Are some of you in hard circumstances this morning? I know you to be such. Isn't it amazing to understand and appreciate that whatever circumstance we're in, God sees us right where we are. And it's with a sight that can make a difference, first and most in our own hearts, but then in the midst of the circumstance. You're not alone. Is COVID hard? Yeah, it is. Do I like COVID? No, I hate it. I hate its implications. It, it, I hate what it does. The threat to the school, the cloud that looms over every week. You know, what's another day going to bring forth? That's tough. Ask Tanya, ask Chris about that. What it does to volunteers at churches. You try to keep all the stations manned up and keep engagement going. Then you have dear ones you love who are going in and out of quarantine. They've been, oh, I, I was with that person for whatever the, this moment CDC standards are before they change it tomorrow, whatever. But, um, you know, it's, I hate this. But one thing we can have confidence in is in the midst of it, God is at work. 20 years of this carnage at Laban's house, but Jacob could stand to say, you know what? God was in the middle of that whole thing, and he was helping me. And he preserved us. In fact, he blessed us in the midst of that. In 20 years, Jacob began, and it would be a lifelong project for Jacob, but he began to develop the default assumption that, you know what? God has my back. God is faithful to his promise. And this is going to work out. I don't know how, I can't see it, but when I have to choose between panic, fear, and anxiety, and trusting the Lord, you know what? I'm going to choose trusting the Lord. Now, just like us, and that guy in the Gospels, remember, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, aren't we just right there? And, and God is still working out, but I love people with great capacity to trust our Lord. Just waiting around. I, I love Elisha who's asleep in the tent. And his servant comes in. Oh, they're surrounded us. It's terrible. And he just, he got up and he says, Lord, help this guy see what's really going on. And he went back to bed. And the guy, you know, and, and then the armies of God were around the armies that surrounded them. Are you boxed in by a hard situation? And let's face it, in a broken world, there are some terrible situations. There is. Cancer, grief, 
struggle, death, mourning. We can existentially feel abandoned, though it's not true. It's a lie from hell. I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I was amazed this week reading again. It's just glorious. Jesus told his followers, hey, it's better for me if I go. What? No, we want you here. It's better if I go. Because when I go, the comforter will come and he will abide with you forever. Never leave. Never forsake. That's who the Lord is. Faith trumps panic every time. God delivers his people from the devastation sin brings to our relationships. I want to stop for a disclaimer. I want to be careful because this hurts. There are some relationships that are broken that regardless of what we do that honors the Lord, they will not be healed because for a relationship to be healed, both parties in the relationship have to be willing and submissive to our Lord. So some followers of Jesus carry around guilt and they have a tender conscience and they can come to a message like this and say, sin wrecks relationship. If you're here this morning and you've done your dead level best in humility, repentance, forgiveness, and grace, and all of that collectively together has not brought the relationship back, you know what? You can stand with a clear conscience on the great day before the Lord and say, Lord, I tried to do everything I could at your direction. And he will say to you, I saw every bit of it. Well done, thou good and faithful Christ-like actor. Because we can't unilaterally heal stuff. But we can return good for evil and return grace and mercy for unresponsiveness just because it pleases the Lord. And take pleasure in the fact that he sees and has noticed it all the way along. Now, let's face the lie. Sin has no relational consequence. Breaking the law of God matters and has consequence. God wove into the fiber of life at creation the law of sowing and reaping. To believe that breaking the law of God does not matter is to be profoundly bewildered bewildered about this point, this moment in history. How is that really working for us as a culture? Let's say two things. Number one, loss. Loss. Sin separated Esau from his brother for 20 years. Look at 2742. He's homicidal. His brother leaves. 3138. He's gone 20 years. How many years are lost? unrecoverable in separation and irreconciliation. I was involved in one conversation brief this week where I was trying to pour grace on a tough relationship in a great family. It's amazing how Satan works. Sure, Esau could freely be treacherous, but all Esau's treachery did was cut him off from relating to those most close to him. Sin's like a wrecking ball. It just just ruins stuff. And God has called us to a different way of life. Now, in pride, 
we minimize the cumulative total sin brings into our lives. Proverbs 13.10 says, A word of wisdom from the Jewish treasury, by insolence comes nothing but strife. The word insolence is a word that means presumption of heart. Or you may like the New American Standards rendition of that. Only by pride comes contention. Now because I have a proud heart, I have so much experience in this area of pride, uh, when my contention meter goes off in my network, I have now learned, knowing of my proclivity to sin and need the grace of our Lord and repentance, to ask, okay, how is my pride or some offense that I've taken in my pride affecting how I'm relating to that person right now? That's a footnote on Proverbs 13.10. Does God want us to look at broken relationships differently this morning? The sin that we need to face to resolve broken down relationships is all too often our own. And that's hard to see. Remember the log and the speck thing? Jesus said, now be careful. You're out there trying to find a little speck in somebody else's eye, why don't you get the light pole out of your own eye? Notice the proportion that he uses to drive home the force of the point, which is easily seen. You know it hurts to face the pole in our eye, but it's a pain that leads to healing and life. All right, well, let's take an inventory of our own hearts and apply the gospel to life. Let's stop this morning for a spiritual heart catheterization. Two questions. Question number one, has my sin broken down any relationship in my family and in my network? This is the Psalm 139.23 moment of the morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. We can be unconscious to our own role and uber-conscious uber and outsized in our perception of the role others have had in the demise of the relationship. Has my sin broken down any relationship in my family and network? Second question. Whom do I need to ask for forgiveness? And whom do I need to forgive? Remember Romans 5.8. For God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Many of us are ready to forgive when those who have hurt us come groveling in the carpet in front of us saying, oh, please be merciful to me. I've sinned against you. God didn't wait around for that. He actually brought that to our own heart by loving us first and reaching for us and going to the cross. He commended his love for us. Remember, we love him because he first loved us. Remember how Jesus treated us. He initiated with an offending party. And so ought we. 
Ephesians 4.32, it's this simple. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake has forgiven us. Has God brought us together this morning to tear down walls that we've built up between others? And again, remember the disclaimer, we don't control both sides of the relationship. We want to die having done everything we could and with a clear conscience to stand before our Lord. I love Barnabas in the book of Acts. Barnabas is like a guy who carried around a 55-gallon drum of grace with a lid off. And he was always pouring it out. Right in the middle of trying to help out. What are we going to do with Paul? Is he saved? He used to you know, drag us out. He held the coat room when they killed Stephen, what are we going Let's send Barnabas. Barnabas is there pouring grace between people who are at odds with each other. Are you that kind of a person? Is that you? Is that me? Look at verses 46 through 54. Before Laban and Jacob meet, they have words and decide they're going to erect a pile of rocks that's going to stand as a witness between them. Now, I'm going to ruin a lot of necklaces this morning. Look at this picture. You have one of these necklaces? Don't raise your hand. If you have it on this morning, it's just beautiful. I really like it. This is the Mizpah necklace. That's the geographic place where Laban meets Jacob. And... Um, People pull out handkerchiefs and they wipe tears from their eyes and they'll give it to each other. Here, you take, you got one locket and I'll have the other one and they go together. This is like the midst of thing. Dear ones, this is between two guys in a huge fight drawing a red line saying, if you cross this red line, I'm going to get you. And if you cross this red line, and, and, and this, this is like the bitter enemies. And yet we put it on a gold chain and have it around your neck. And um, you can sell it in the garage sale. It's all right. Just don't read... Genesis 31 to them. But let me tell you about another symbol. It's this symbol here. And some have this around their neck. Because in this symbol, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You talk about what is the remedy for parties who are gone apart. At the heart of the gospel is this story that we sinned against God and we were separated from God of our own fault as a result of our sin, he being holy, we being sinful. But he came running after us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross for our sins. Remember, he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought our peace fell on him. And that God made peace through Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And this becomes a great symbol of reconciliation. Eric, how do you be reconciled? Somebody's got to die. And if you've ever been reconciled to another person, by the way, all reconciliation work is hard work. And you never get to the end before you die. Your pride has to die. Your desire to be proved right has to die. This is the quintessential symbol of friendship, love, glory. God acted in Christ. This is access. Remember when Jesus died? He gave up his spirit. Remember what happened? The curtain in the temple was torn in two. 
The distance, the separation was no more because God interposed himself in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you need to be reconciled to God. But the good news for you this morning is God has already acted to make that be possible for you. And he is prepared this morning to give you the free gift of eternal life in trusting in Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your Savior? Oh, you say, yeah, Eric, I know him as my Savior. I received him as my Savior. Great. Praise the Lord. Do you live like the gospel's true? What do you mean? If you are a child of the gospel who has been brought near and had sinful issues resolved in the person of Christ, are we peacemakers and grace givers and leading the lig and forgivers because our lives are so marked by what the gospel has done? Let's pray. What is God saying to you this morning? Could it be true that you've believed the lie that you can act however you want and it will have no effect on your relatedness to others? That's not true. Are you here this morning and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus and the obstacle of your sin is still staring you in the face between you and God? Hey, give it up. Give it to our Lord who resolved it on Good Friday. Be forgiven. Receive the gift of eternal life. Believe in Jesus Christ. Do you sit here this morning with things to do before our Lord in relation to others? Do you sit here this morning? Don't you dare take on false guilt. If you have acted and forgiven and shared mercy and been gracious and kind, walk forward. As much as lieth within you, I love that phrase, it's so realistic, be at peace with all men. O oh Lord, by your Holy Spirit in this moment, listen to our prayers. Draw out of our hearts the idols that beset us. Open hearts to new directions you want us to move in. We need you. Listen to our prayers. Father, relational pain hurts bad. But Jesus was hurt on the cross so that sin could be resolved. Help us not only to believe the gospel to be saved, but to live the gospel to have an authentic life. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing.